Welcome to Debased, a show about the current state of money with Jeff Deist. Earlier this week, the credit rating agency Fitch decided to issue, publicize a downgrade to the U.S. Treasury and its debt rating, uh, taking it from AAA, which at current represents just a handful of countries around the world. And the countries you might expect, places like Switzerland and Luxembourg and Norway and Sweden, but maybe some places you might not expect, like Australia, are included in that AAA rating. Uh, Interestingly, England is not, France is not, Canada is not, and now, at least in the view of Fitch, the United States is not a AAA-rated country any longer. Uh, So the question becomes, of course, Whether this is just white noise, uh, whether this will turn out to be a pretty meaningless blip, or whether it's another real tremor that shows that the United States is in bigger fiscal policy trouble and in bigger monetary policy trouble than perhaps uh, our experts and our overlords are telling us. So that's really the the question for our show today. Is this a big deal? I kind of think it is. But I could go either way on this. And, of course, it happened back in 2011. Standard & Poor's uh, announced in 2011 when there were a lot of unholy debt deals going on in the aftermath of the global financial crisis uh, that the United States would be downgraded. And, they, of course, they, they retracted that later. So this might be as much of a blip as that. It might not be. Uh, I would like to mention before we get to some of our speakers and panelists, uh, The usual suspects, all the kind of people that we might expect to defend the Fed, to to defend the United States in terms of its fiscal and monetary posture, they all came out in cahoots saying this was no big deal whatsoever. So let's let's have a rundown. This is a parade of horribles. Uh, Larry Summers announced that this was bizarre and inept. The diminutive Janet Yellen, one of my least favorite people, said that this was arbitrary and based on outdated data. Yeah, like how much you borrow and how much you spend. These are outdated, according to Yellen. Uh, Jamie Dimon, who I I don't know, I'm not as inclined to hate. He's obviously a very smart guy. Uh, He said that it was kind of ridiculous. The aging misanthrope Warren Buffett said there are some things people should not worry about, and this is not one of them. Uh, the execrable Jim Cramer said he is not concerned. The smart, but I think compromised Mohammed El Arian said he was surprised, but expects the market to brush it off. And the White House uh, told us that uh, Joe Biden has delivered the strongest recovery of any major economy in the world, presumably meaning recovery from uh, COVID, not from our own fiscal monetary policies. So one of the few uh, voices in opposition to this or major voices in this was Steve Schwartzman at BlackRock, who said publicly yesterday, that actually the numbers justify this. So is this a real, a real thing or is this just a minor blip? Well, Fitch said that this was the result of fiscal concerns we got plenty of those. Fitch announced it was because of deterioration in U.S. governance. Uh, you know, there's been several debt limit standoffs over the past couple of years. Well, really over the past decade or so. These have become a, a form of political theater in Washington, D.C., among Congress. 
And just the, the political polarization of the United States was also cited by Fitch, and that is certainly going to get worse as the next year and a half unravels an election period. We don't know if, if Donald Trump would be a felon. We don't know if Trump will be the nominee. We don't know if Joe Biden will be the nominee. But what we do know is that these harm rituals we call presidential elections that occur every four years, the last couple of them have been pretty nasty and driven people apart. And so we, we presumably should expect that the 2024 presidential election is going to do more of that. So let's let uh, Peter give us his, his uh, overall rundown on this. Right. OK. So anyway, what she said was that the decision by Fitch was outdated. And, I, and I'm saying she was categorically correct, because right now the median debt to GDP ratio of AAA rated sovereign debt issuers is 39 percent. The U.S. hasn't been at that ratio uh, since 1978. So this is a long outdated decision. The U.S. right now is at 112 percent. Mm. So even before the COVID, even before the COVID pandemic, you know, we were over 100 percent. So this is long out of date. Should have happened a long time ago. One thing that, that I think is interesting, because I don't think that uh, these these like downgrades, you know, people I don't think that it really affects, you know, people that are, are buying uh, government government debt. I think that. Um, I read that after the S&P downgrade, a lot of institutions started changing, um, you know, what they called it instead of like, you know, something like risk free. They just called it like government bonds instead of actually like the rating itself. Um, but I think that one thing that this made me think of is like, you know, are these rating are the ratings a joke? I mean, it's uh, it's pretty interesting that, you know, Moody's at the same time that Fitch did this downgrade after S&P downgraded like 10 years ago. Uh, Moody's has maintained the AAA rating uh, reflecting America's exceptional economic strength, high governance strength and the government's ability to fund itself thanks to the central role of the dollar in the global financial system. So I think that, uh, you know, this is a, it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a good way that we can use to, you know, like think about, um, to talk about the government's uh, fiscal standing. But I think that really the, at least Moody's is, is still, um, basically discrediting itself by maintaining it's the current AAA rating. Well, I mean, you, you, you can look at it a few different ways. In a nominal sense, given the United States' uh, status as the world's reserve currency, given the appetite for U.S. Treasuries relative to other kinds of sovereign debt and corporate debt over many, many decades, uh, there is certainly an argument that this can go on forever and that the United States can always create money to pay interest on its debt. It can always service its debt and that we don't have to worry much about this. Uh, but whether that's you know, entirely true, when we start to look at debt to GDP ratios, when we start to look at, at uh, future spending issues for Congress based on entitlements, when we start to look at uh, the deteriorating political position of the United States, which I think you know, that we've had some shows on the BRICS currency, I think that's a reflection of that. And so, I, I just thought, given the context of everything that's, that's happening right now, this downgrade, when the Biden administration is telling us 
about the great successes of Bidenomics. We have the uh, Jerome Powell and other Fed economists telling us that no recession is actually on the horizon any longer. And just yesterday, we had a report of Bank of America economists. There's a story posted on Drudge. Uh, have also decided that we are not going to have a recession anytime soon. So that means we're going to have a soft landing, so-called, which I interpret as meaning inflation comes down without a huge spike in unemployment and without any kind of stock market crash or severe uh, diminution. So that's how I define a soft landing. So, you know, maybe all this stuff is possible, maybe it isn't. But the timing of this, I think, was probably not appreciated uh, by the Biden administration. Two things to add. You know, it is true. I mean, uh, uh, the, the awful Dean Baker of the Center for Economic and Policy Research yesterday said, you know, it's insane to think that because that we could ever default because we can print our own money. But I mean, does he really think that the first dollar and the 32 trillionth dollar are going to be anywhere near the same? It's a, it's an absurd idea. Um, and, and, and further, you know, with this is idea that this second quarter GDP number points to a soft landing. And I took a, a very close look at it over the last couple of uh, uh, days. And for example, you know, we had this 2.4% GDP number. That's the first run. It may get, you know, estimated downwards. But 1.1% of that number was basically consumer activity, which fell from 4.2% in the first quarter to 1.6% in the second quarter. But more importantly, a really good predictor of recessions is not just um, consumer activity, but durable goods spending. And that fell from 16.4% in the first quarter to 0.4% in the second quarter. So we already have rising delinquency on 90 or 90-day or longer delinquencies are rising on car loans. So the consumer is not going to be able to hold up this economy for that much longer. That puts in doubt this whole idea of a soft landing. You know, there's, there's so much inertia, though. There's been decades and decades of this, and people forget that not only do gigantic pension funds, mutual funds, uh, hold enormous amounts of U.S. treasuries. Some of them are required to by their charters. Uh, that's also true of sovereign governments. There are, go there are sovereign governments all around the world that hold U.S. treasuries as a matter of course. I mean, they're considered almost just a quarter step away from holding U.S. dollar reserves uh, with the Fed or otherwise. So that's interesting to me. And, and the idea that U.S. Treasury debt operates a lot like the dollar, although not always in tandem. One can go up while the other goes down and vice versa. But the idea that holding treasuries is almost like holding dollars, I think, is it's probably become increasingly the case over the past few decades when, you know, in, in pretty short order, just from the time of George W. Bush entering office, let's say in early 2001, when the total U.S. debt was 25 uh, trillion, excuse me, 5 trillion, now over 30 trillion. So, uh, again, you know, EJ, we, I just wonder uh, if not U.S. bonds then what, right? That becomes the question, what would ever replace it? Yeah, I, I do actually think that there's a problem with that logic. I, I think our friend Michael Malice has this quote, which I like, which is, you know, the, the Fitch rating, for example, is something that he would call factual, but not truthful. It is a fact that the U.S. can print more dollars or borrow more dollars into existence to fund or service that debt cost. That is a fact. 
But it's not true that therefore everything is just fine, no need to worry, uh, as, as the Fitch downgrade showed. I think the thing to think about is exactly what you pointed out, Jeff, which is that, you know, where is that other safe haven? Where are people running to, especially pension funds, um, corporations that need, you know, as riskless of an asset as that they can get? And then the question is, is if that uh, asset, which is, you know, the dollar and, and dollar denominated assets, begins to be put in question and, and there's more risk in the system than otherwise thought. What does that mean for other countries, other currencies whose value in, in many ways is denominated or derived from U.S. dollars, U.S. assets, U.S. treasuries? Um, in, I think CEO Keith Weiner sometimes says, you know, the dollar is, is kind of that main single currency and everything is just a derivative underneath. And it would be almost impossible to have something like a euro or a yen, which is deriving its value from those dollars, from that you know, risk-free asset that they call the US dollar and US debt, to actually replace it or still survive while the underlying asset itself, like the US dollar and the US currency, goes under the same way that a US call option, or uh, sorry, an Apple call option uh, can't survive while Apple stock goes to zero. Uh, obviously, the, the call options are derived their value from the Apple stock. So for Apple stock to fall to zero while the, the derivatives remain is is something just clearly implausible. The same way that you know US Treasury debt or US dollars going under while you know a Russian ruble or a yen remain is is highly unlikely. Yeah the interesting thing of course is that in a in a very real sense the world wants one currency. Right. Just like we're almost inexorably like English. Most of us on this call enjoy the, the privilege. There's no other word for it of having English as our native language. And there's virtually no place you can go on Earth where, you know, there aren't signs in English or, you know, street signs to get you to the airport or to get you to the water closet or whatever it might be. Uh, and it almost feels like the dollar is like that. I mean, you can go to the former Rhodesia, you can go to Zimbabwe, you can go to Turkey, you can go to a lot of places and the merchants are able to transact between multiple currencies and make, uh, you know, these exchanges in their heads because the dollar, among others, is just so dominant. So I, you know, I, I'd like to explore a little bit more about this because it appears the dollar's up a little bit. Um, there, there's a difference between how treasuries perform and how the dollar performs. One can go up while the other goes down. So I think in terms of dollar versus treasury, I think in a lot of ways they're similar. Um, I think the one difference is the one that you pointed out um, and something to take into account would be capital controls um, and, and what people can get access to and in what form. In a lot of ways, uh, the dollar and the treasury are just the same beast in different forms. Um, but getting that beast into your country or out of your country is, is a bit easier or more difficult depending on its form. Um, I'm thinking of people in Argentina, especially the central bank in Argentina versus the actual individuals living there, how hard it is to get your hands on dollar currency. Um, and, and obviously, as their currency devalues what their central bank is trying to do with the amount of dollars or treasuries that they own, um, selling those off not because they're trying to de-dollarize to buy more yuan or, or do anything with their currency or even use gold, but because they're actually in distress and they're trying to sell whatever assets that they do have to get more dollars um, or, in their case, try to strengthen their currency by adding more to their reserves. Um, 
I think that is what matters. Uh, I, I'm not sure the downgrade matters to countries like an Argentina or like um, a, a Russia who have just very different uh, geopolitical problems, ob- obtaining dollars, obtaining treasuries. I'm sure they want them as much as they uh, bemoan the dollar. I think there is a love-hate relationship there, which is that they need treasuries, they need dollars. Um, the real question is in what form and what format can they get them? I don't think this downgrade matters to those countries. Yeah, I always wonder, though, about rates. I mean, right now, the 10 years sitting at about a little over 4%. The one year, still inverted, sitting at about 5.37%. And then we've got the overnight bank rate, the Fed funds rate, at still higher at 5.5%. So by historical standards, none of these are high. As a matter of fact, you know, the Fed funds rate has, has been well above 5% many, many times in the history of the Fed. And sometimes it's been up over eight or even 10% during the Volcker era of the late 70s and early 1980s, the Fed funds rate was double digits. And, um, you know, despite the market's supply and demand, it was unable to overcome that. And so average people, average borrowers, there are plenty of people, ask your parents or grandparents who, who back in the 70s and 80s actually paid double digit uh, interest on, let's say, a mortgage. But at the same time, they could go get double-digit interest on savings. So it was a different era in that sense. And now it seems like people are paying uh, you know, interest rates, at least for automobiles, for example, up in 7 8%, sometimes 10%. Um, and you know, mortgages, 6 7-ish, depending. Uh, so again, higher, you know, they're, they're paying more in interest than they can get in a simple treasury. Uh, so we be- take a step back, you know, look at the look at the borrower, Uncle Sam. Look at its fiscal condition. Year after year after year, it's, it spends more than it takes in in taxes. I mean, deficits are now per- deficit, fin- deficit financing is now a permanent feature of the federal government's landscape, of Congress's landscape. That's you know, we're going to have deficits as far as the eye can see. The last time we really didn't was arguably during the Clinton years, although there actually was an accounting uh, trick used to apply some of the Social Security, the FICA and food income taxes to tax receipts in a way that they're supposed to be segregated. But l- let's just say, uh, for sake of argument, that Clinton balanced the budget and the taxes and spending uh, you know, we're in sync as recently as the 1990s. Well, that's a long time ago. And so if you take year after year after year of big deficits, any, you know, easily a trillion dollar deficits projected into the future, that means that the debt is going to continue to rise uh, and that Congress will continue to spend a significant portion more than it raises in taxes. Okay, so that, that feature of Fitch's downgrade is not going to change anytime soon. So that's, you know, the spending and the debt are, are ultimately what determines one's credit rating. Now, the U.S. doesn't default, but imagine if the U.S. Uh, government were a household or an individual. I mean, this would be the equivalent of constantly uh, spending more than you bring in an income, uh, constantly borrowing more and more, constantly asking your creditors to raise your credit card limits, and then constantly making minimum payments but needing more credit 
um, relative to your income to make those payments over time. I mean, most people would look at that situation and say, look, we got to cut this person off. This borrower is never going to get his or her fiscal house in order. And, you know, they need to uh, declare bankruptcy or consider themselves insolvent. They need to sell assets. They need to be cut off from borrowing. They need to, you know, go out and get a second job or, or whatever it might be to increase their income. I mean, that's how we would deal with this rationally uh, in terms of a household or an individual. But because Uncle Sam can print money, he has that unique privilege. But, you know, at what, at what point does the rest of the world, and this, I think, mirrors the, the BRICS idea, at what point does the rest of the world look at this government and say, look, you know, the United States is never, ever, ever going to get its fiscal house in order. This is never going to happen. Why are we lending them money? Why don't we demand junk bond rates in order to lend Uncle Sam money? I think that's a, a valid question at this point. And beyond that, there's almost what, what we might say is a moral dimension to this. Um, the U.S. government's ability to spend beyond its means, which is backstopped by treasuries, when, which is backstopped by our credit rating as a country, uh, that allows us to do all kinds of things around the world. It, it allows us to use foreign aid as a carrot to make foreign governments do what we want them to do. It allows us to use uh, military adventurism as a stick to make foreign governments do what we want them to do. It, it enables us to, to do things like go into Iraq and Afghanistan in the 2000s when the, the George W. Bush administration and the, and the Republican Congress, I might add, was spending wildly beyond what it was taking in in taxes. So not only from a, from let's say a financial perspective, should a lender look at the United States and say, yeah, you know, I, I'm sorry, but you know, 4% on a 10 year bond is not gonna cut it. I want 18% like back in the day, but there's also the moral dimension, which is why, why am I loaning money? And lots of people all around the world, not just in the US are buying treasuries every day and effectively loaning the US government money why am I loaning money to a geopolitical rival? That's certainly a fair question um, for a lot of the world. So, you know, along with the dollar privilege, which we've enjoyed and we've discussed on past shows, uh, the U.S. owns a debt privilege in the form of treasuries always having a ready market. And if, if that ever changed or if that interest rate ever spiked, Congress would be in huge trouble because even at, even with a blended weighted average of interest rates on outstanding U.S. Treasury debt, you know, only recently has that crept up above 2%. And you have to remember that even though the Treasury is issuing debt at, you know, at four or, or whatever it has been for the last year or so since, since interest rates began to rise, the weighted average still includes all that debt issued over the past couple of decades when interest rates were much, much lower. So the weighted average of all U.S. Treasury debt is still quite low. If it ever got up to four, five, six, seven percent, the the you know congressional budget would be so blown out of the water, and the need to either print money or issue debt would be so transparent to the rest of the world that I think we could be um, almost in the debt equivalent of a hyperinflationary environment, in that in that people would demand again junk bond rates in order to issue more debt to this profligate government. So that's, that's the scary proposition for the future, maybe, for our kids or our grandkids. So I'll, I'll go back to David for his thoughts. 
Yeah, there's there's so much to to jump off of there. One thing in particular, like like you were saying earlier, Ben, is is capital controls. I think that um, you know it's it's it, it would be easier. It would be fairly easy for uh, the government to mandate that certain uh, mutual funds have to own X amount of of, of treasuries, um, but the the um, there has to be some sort of balance. Like they can't just go too far, right? And so that's that's something to consider. And then also one thing that's interesting uh, to me is everybody, people are always saying like, oh, what about Trump tax cuts or, or something like that? But in 2023, according to the CBO, uh, federal revenues are 18.4% of GDP, 1.2 percentage points up from the 17.2% average of the past 30 years. So federal revenue is actually up a little bit in 2023. And then, but federal government outlays are gonna be 24.2% of GDP, 3.2% above the average of, of the last 30 years. So I think that, that it's interesting to see like everybody is always pointing to like tax cuts, but those really aren't a factor anymore. It's really just spending. And that's what seems to be what I mean, it just—it's just out of control. I mean, there's no, there's no really uh, way around it. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think government spending is the uh, inflationary force in, in the United States today. I mean, the fiscal side uh, is it, certainly over the last couple of years since COVID is much more the culprit than the monetary policy side. I mean, and and if anything, you know, Jerome Powell. Um, I think on some level he senses this. I, I, in other words, I don't view him the way I view, uh, let's say, Alan Greenspan or Ben Bernanke. I mean, Alan Greenspan knows better. Okay, um, you know, Alan Greenspan knew better. He <laughs> he wrote that article, "Golden Economic Freedom," uh, which is published in which was published in the you know the Objectivist newsletter way back in the day. I think that's from the '60s, maybe '66 or '67. I might be getting that date wrong, but he published that a long time ago and he, he knew better. I, I mean, he's still alive, I guess I can hardly, he's kind of like Kissinger, but he, he really understood uh, the inflationary aspects of what the, the fed does. Uh, Bernanke certainly a brilliant guy, but if you look at his PhD dissertation on the great depression, it was just incredibly wrong. I mean, it was just, it was like the worst monetarism combined with a progressive Keynesian policy view of the world. So, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, Ben Bernanke, I guarantee you, is a high horsepower IQ guy, but he never had Alan uh, Greenspan's understanding of things. And you fast forward Yellen, um, you know, she, she, she was kind of milquetoast, but Jerome Powell is a very different cat. First of all, he's a lawyer, not an economist, not a PhD economist, the first Fed chair in quite a while. Um, and I do know someone who was at the Dallas Fed for many, many years, whose opinion of Powell was that he's super, super smart and that when he's read everything and that he was when he was tapped, he actually ramped up his reading. And, you know, this is pure speculation on my part, but but I'm, I'm told or it's suggested that he has read the Austrian school, at least, you know, on some level. 
you know, maybe superficially or whatever, and that he, he's able to grasp uh, whole economic schools of thought, you know, on his own without the PhD. And, and that's probably true. So, um, you know, on some level, I wonder if, if Jerome Powell understands this, but like so many other Fed chairs before him, feels like, look, you know, that's all nice, but right now I just got to get through this current crisis. Um, so let, let's get back to Ben. Ben, you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we, we just had J.P. Cortez of the Sound Money Defense League, and something that you, you were saying that kind of brought this to mind. So they have this index called a Sound Money Index where they rank all the U.S. states on their sound money policies, whether they're taxing gold and silver, whether they have a sales tax, income tax, so on and so forth. And one of the things that I liked about the Sound Money Index was that no state has a good ranking. I think one of the best states has like a, an 80 or a 63. Um, and, and the reason is, is because none of these states are any good. It's, it's choosing the worst, uh, the, the best of the worst. And I wonder if the same thing will happen with the United States, which is that I, I don't see a scenario where any of the three issues that Fitch brought up for their downgrade gets turned around. I mean, I, if, if maybe Jerome Powell starts reading Pete Earle's work, we can maybe just have a shot of, uh, of, of turning this around, but I, I don't see governance issues going away. I don't see, like you said, um, spending more than they're taking in and taxes going away. I don't see that exorbitant privilege somehow turning around. Um, and if I was Powell or the United States Treasury, I wouldn't do anything about it either. I mean, so far the dollar remains intact. Other countries like the ruble, the yuan, the yen are in much worse shape. Um, I, I, I see this continuing. I want, I'd be interested to hear what maybe Pete has to say. And then Joe, who I see popped on, can, can give his opinion as well. A lot of you know Joe Consorti. He's got the Bitcoin layer substack, which you should check out. So, Joe, we've been talking about, um, you know, the elements of Fitch's decision to downgrade and whether this is just white noise, meaningless, or whether it's a real tremor that we ought to pay attention to. The powers that be are working overtime to tell us it's nothing, which makes me instinctively think it's something. So let's see if Joe can join. You know, my thoughts on this are like it was inevitable. I mean, really, we're, we're running a 114 percent deficit, I believe. Um, uh, tax receipts are extremely disappointing and we're running into a wall with interest payments. And so the Treasury um, is, uh, you know, with uh, with total net interest outlays, excuse me, not net interest outlays, but interest expenditure from the U.S. government. Um, at $970 billion as of last Tuesday um, for quarter three. And so really like this was totally inevitable. And if, if we're being honest here, um, like it's still a total, total sweetheart package that we're getting um, being rated. What do we get downgraded from triple A plus to triple A or, or downgraded to triple A plus something like that. It's still a total sweetheart deal um, considering the fact that, uh, we are slated to issue. I mean, we just we just resolved the debt ceiling, and now it's been suspended, which of course is completely fiscally irresponsible. A new limit wasn't set, which of course it's arbitrary. Rather, it was just lifted entirely until a certain date, uh, and so it just gives Congress the ability to, through the U.S. Treasury, issue new debt with impunity. We're not taking the discussion of fiscal austerity seriously at a national level. We aren't even talking about it. I think the only candidate that's saying anything about it is like Vivek and RFK Jr. And 
you know, I think they're probably going to try to kill RFK Jr., frankly, before he, you know, on the election trail. I have a strong feeling they're going to do that, um, you know, given the history of the Kennedy family. Unless, you know, we grow our way out of it, A, right, which is kind of a laughable concept at this point. Um, or B, we actually we, we cut government spending by 70 percent, lay off all of the fat. Of course, governments do not have the incentive to be efficient capital allocators. Um, then this is just going to continue being an issue. Um, interest payments are where they are because rates are where they are. Uh, and so the Treasury is issuing almost two trillion dollars worth of uh, bills and notes um, all the way up through, excuse me, notes and bonds uh, through the end of this year. It's no wonder that. Um, you know, if, if you're if you're a nation or you're an individual, or you're a business or you're anybody and you are paying off interest on your existing debt by issuing new debt. Yeah, you're going to get downgraded, particularly if none of your your plan as a nation, as an entity is to actually rein in spending, but to increase spending. So really, none of it comes as a surprise as for whether or not it's a nothing burger. Um, I think this was long overdue, A, but B, I think because, um, of course, the U.S., is the world's, um, you know, we're home to the world's most uh, liquid reserve uh, currency, obviously the U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries. I don't think much is going to come from it from a global scale. Um, the debt thing is something that other nations are facing too. So I think this is a problem with all with all uh, nations around the world right now, right? This These huge fiscal deficits. Um, the reality is I think... Uh, it's bad for the United States, but from a market reaction standpoint, I think they'll, they'll consider it a nothing burger. And as for whether or not this is like signaling some kind of shift, I wouldn't say so. I think the problem is just bad now and it's going to continue getting worse. Well, the other thing that's bizarre here is that even with all of our debt and even with our ability, our inability seemingly to have any kind of serious conversation politically about austerity or paying it off or anything even remotely related to that. I mean, everybody on this call understands that really at the state level too, but at the national level, any kind of uh, talk about austerity is an absolute non-starter. You will immediately be blown out of the water as a candidate. Anybody, as Ross Perot did back in 92, Ross Perot had all those charts that he was standing next to showing how uh, debt entitlements were unsustainable. Well, it turns out that he was right. And, um, you know, he, he, he got like 19% of the popular vote, which was a significant third party achievement and, and remains one. But nonetheless, uh, especially with the over 65 segment of the population set to double, folks, set to double by 2050, uh, there's not going to be a large constituency of voters for cutting or means testing Social Security and Medicare, to put it mildly. Uh, Social Security and Medicare, along with soon interest on the national debt and so-called defense spending, those four pillars will uh, be the bulk of Congress's spending every year, overwhelmingly. Um, as a matter of fact, we're probably almost at the point, we shall soon be at the point where tax revenues are not enough to pay for just those four things, Social Security, Medicare, defense, and interest payments. So... You know, the idea that we're going to have a political uh, come to Jesus meeting on all of this, I think, is just a non-starter. The, the nature of democratic politics is to kick the can down the road, to have a high time preference, to prefer uh, doing things politically today at the expense of tomorrow, whether that's the ex expense of future, future generations or taxpayers or whatever it might be. And we have a poignant example of that 
in the social security system itself. Uh, I mean, that was passed by in the 1930s by people who were long dead. And only now, nearly 100 years later, are we up against it in terms of the number of social security recipients versus the number of younger workers paying in uh, to the so-called system. So, you know, a lot of times what you do in democratic politics is kick the can down the road. That's the nature of the beast. So I, I don't see that changing. And I, there's an overlay to that, though, as well. When I mentioned junk bond rates earlier, I mean, you look at how screwed up the fiscal situation is in the United States. Why would anyone uh, lend to us at something other than junk bond rates? Well, there's a bunch of reasons, and we all know those, including our military, our dollar, uh, the fact that pension funds and governments and institutional investors are just simply set up to buy the least dirty shirt in the laundry. But on top of that, what's what's new, I think, relative to let's say, Paul Volcker's time. What is new is the idea that interest rates bear no relationship to the underlying economic reality of supply and demand for credit. Uh, in other words, interest rates are today seen almost entirely as policy tools, something that treasuries or central banks set, like they're tuning knobs, they're fine-tuning the economy. So interest rates as policy tools, and I would say all those smart people under... 30, maybe even under 40, who came out of places like Wharton and Harvard and Stanford and Oxford, you know, um, and are serious quants and, and have serious MBAs or serious econ PhDs, you know, that's how they view interest rates as a tool. Maybe not something you can just set, not so easy. Markets are stubborn things. But nonetheless, you know, you can target a Fed funds rate, for example. And prime borrowers are generally going to pay a couple points above that because banks have their cost of lending, but they also have to make a little money, excuse me, their cost of, of capital, but they also have to make a little on top of that to pay everybody's salary. Um, so we, you know, that's how we view interest rates today as something that governments or central banks manipulate and set. You know, I, I mean, it, it's almost, if you went and told a Fed economist today, if you gave them the Austrian theory of interest, which explains interest rates as ex as pure expressions of time preference, a ratio between the time preferences of borrowers and savers, I think they would look at you like you were speaking in a foreign language, right? I mean, that was one of the huge contributions of the Austrian school was to explain the phenomenon of interest as, as an expression of time preference. We all everything else equal. We all prefer stuff today versus stuff tomorrow, right? That's natural and inherent in our humanity because life is finite. Um, and, you know, you'd rather have your dream home at age 40 than age 99 because time is an element in time preference. So time preference explains why we will pay more for something today than we will in the future. And time preference explains why some people will forego consumption today and all of the uncertainty that comes with lending money, you might not get paid back. Uh, to, you know, some people will forego consumption today to have more money a year or two or five or 10 from now, right? That's, that's the Austrian explanation for interest rates. The, the, the Marxist said, no, 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 interest is just exploitation. These greedy capitalists already have all the capital, and then they even charge us interest to use it. 
Uh, that's the that was the you know the Marxist explanation. The the neo the classical the Adam Smith and then the neoclassical and and really the Keynesian explanation of interest was this kind of amorphous concept. Well, it's a return on capital. It's a it's a fee. You know, it's kind of a return on using capital. But that never really got to the heart of the matter, did it? And so when we don't have any conception of what, you know, people who agree with the Austrian notion, when we don't have any conception of, of, of interest rates as, ex, as expressions of the preferences of borrowers and savers, because government and central banks sort of set interest rates and loanable funds is something that the Fed can conjure up without anybody saving Right. That's the difference between circulation credit and commodity credit, as Mises termed it. You know, commodity credit means somebody else is foregoing consumption so that you can borrow and consume. Right. But with circulation credit, that's not the case. Rocket Mortgage can just go issue uh, mortgages today. And, and so a lot of credit is piggybacked on the system and, and effectively created out of thin air. So, you know, conceptually speaking. I would argue that we are so unhinged, so untethered from any real understanding of interest rates um, that we've almost lost sight of what they are. So, I mean, I'll, I'll go back maybe to David for, for thoughts. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that... Uh, Excuse my rambling soliloquy, David. No, no, it was, it was amazing. And it, it reminded me of... Uh, Ed Chancellor's book, uh, the, the Price of Time, and and how um, the, the just this idea really over the the zero interest rate um, that that you know past decade of, of zero interest rate uh, policy, how those rates you know viewing that as as natural and this like generation of people that has almost viewed that as natural. I mean now it's not, but that idea kind of wormed its way into everything like in investor thinking forecasts, inflation expectations. I mean, and, and it's done a lot of, a lot of, it's had many pernicious effects. Let's go back to Joe, if he's still with us, cause I'd like to, I'd like to get his take on, on the future. What do you think, if anything, uh, I haven't watched Bitcoin this week. Has Bitcoin re reacted? No, not at all. Um, if you want to, you know, the latest stable coin on the market is Bitcoin sitting at 29,000 for the last several weeks. Um, yeah, Bitcoin is uh, very, very muted as of late, uh, which is kind of a stark divergence from other risk uh, markets, particularly credit and uh, equities. Obviously, equities have earnings um, and those have done extremely well over the last three to four weeks. So that is... Um, caused their rally to continue, whereas Bitcoin has uh, stagnated. I don't know if I, I can read into that too much about what that means. Um, historically, Bitcoin has been uh, great at uh, kind of sniffing what's ahead because it is uh, such high beta risk, um, relatively illiquid compared to uh, other stuff, and also it doesn't have any earnings. And so it's just purely uh, a gauge for, uh, for risk sentiment, and obviously uh, as a variety of other market factors such as uh, all of the, uh, you know, uh, institutions that exploded last year. But um, I don't know if I want to read into Bitcoin's uh, lack of volatility too much, but it is at historic lows for volatility, um, which, you know, if anything, it, uh, it just paints the reality that, yeah, the um, and of course, I don't I don't think this is trading off of it or because of it. But, um, you know, the the uh, the Fitch downgrade is just uh, it's just expected right at this point. I mean, the, the talk of the last 
um, several months now has been we're approaching the debt ceiling and now we're raising the debt ceiling and now we're above the debt ceiling and oh no, um, you know, we've breached it and now it's not going to be a conversation again until 2025, um, you know, when uh, when it isn't spent anymore and we have to talk about it again. And God, God only knows how close to $40 trillion, um, you know, in total uh, total marketable U.S. debt will be at by the time we get there. I reckon very, very close. Um, but yeah, as for Bitcoin, basically doing nothing at this point. I mean, that, that suspension of the debt ceiling, that is really something. That's criminal. I mean, back in the day, Congress used to have to individually, uh, as a standalone bill, approve each and every new debt issuance. Uh, that was how things worked before someone came up with the debt ceiling concept. So that's, and these baby boomers in Congress, I mean, Joe Biden and company, they will go nuts with this spending and they will scorch the earth and then shuffle off this mortal coil, as they say, with, you know, without the slightest compunction. I mean, that's what's what's so uh, aggravating about this. So we, we almost have to wrap up. Let, let's go to Ben and then and then we'll close out. Ben, let's why don't you give us your thoughts? Yeah, I want to thank everyone for joining me today. Really, really great thoughts. Peter uh, mentioned, you know, Warren Buffett in the very beginning. Something interesting, uh, you know, obviously Warren Buffett says gold has no income. That's why he doesn't buy it. Um, I, I wonder what he would think about, you know, holding treasuries and, and holding dollars. I mean, at a 0% interest rate, should he not be holding those either because it has no income? Um, gold does have an income, obviously, at monetary metals. And I, I want to take a second just to kind of uh, use monetary metals as, as an interest rate um, kind of uh, analogy. So obviously, when a person rents out their gold for interest, they do do exactly like you said, Jeff, they take time and their time preference into consideration to make that interest rate decision for themselves. Zero um, percent interest or 0.1 percent interest, like you might see on a CD from a bank, is just not enough for most people to say, oh, take my gold and, and you can rent it out to a jeweler, for example, for one year. But at 5% interest, that, that really does entice people. And you can see with a physical commodity like Mises kind of talked about, there is a, a truth to that interest rate that is kind of hard to uh, be unrealistic about. I mean, that is your gold, your property, your commodity, and it's out of your hands for a certain amount of time, which means you demand a certain amount of interest. When you look at the dollar or, or the treasury's market, it's just completely different. I mean, you have a central planning board deciding what rates are going to be. Um, they can shoot them to the moon. They can bring them to zero. Um, there's almost nothing about the marginal saver or the marginal business owner that is involved in setting rates. I don't think Jerome Powell has ever mentioned the word marginal. Um, so he might not be reading enough Peter Earle and Austrians. But it, it's just such an indictment of the system that we can see just horrible, horrible policies, fiscal and monetary, and still see like Joe mentioned, just an incredible rating. I mean, the, the AA plus rating isn't horrible. It's not um, the worst in the world. And yet um, th there is nothing Austrian or even economical about how interest rates are currently set. Um, the, the market is kind of working around these central planners. So it, it's such an indictment. Hopefully other currencies or other commodities like gold, even cryptocurrencies can, can try to shine a light on on how bad this system is and hopefully over time they'll they'll people will just in their own self-interest say hey you know five percent interest on gold or holding a cryptocurrency that i have control over that commodity um th that's how i'm going to use my spending my wealth my dollars and secure 
my interest rates and my time preference in a way that I know that I can. Yeah, I think this is one of the situations where the term suddenly then all at once applies. Uh, drip by drip, we're certainly seeing cracks in the foundations of the United States fiscal dominance of the world, at least at the governmental level. I mean, at the, at the private business level, I think we're still a standout relative uh, to much of the world. I see Apple had a very disappointing uh, sales call yesterday. Uh, and yet, you know, you look at Apple, they're trading at 33 times revenues. You, you look at Amazon, which has never paid a dividend. It's been a public company since the late 90s. Amazon's never paid a dividend. It's uh, 322 times uh, price to earnings. Uh, it's, it's 130 bucks a share. It has 41 cents per share earnings, and it's never paid a dividend. So at some point, it just becomes a Ponzi scheme. In other words, you buy, um, you buy Amazon stock because number go up. It's just pure capital gains, and you're going to sell it to somebody else for more until it goes down, and then you're selling to a, what they call a knife catcher at that point. And that sure feels like the United States' stock, uh, you, you know, if we could use such an analogy, uh, is wildly uh, overvalued. So I want to thank everybody for joining. We're always here at 2 Eastern on Fridays. You know, anybody who's got topic ideas or guests they'd like to hear from in future spaces. And again, the, the main thrust is money and monetary policy. Uh, hit me up via Twitter messages. So we'll be back in a week. Hope everybody has a great weekend and thanks for joining us.